This podcast is brought to you by Prime Sport, official travel partner of the Seahawks. I take it in, but don't look down. I'm on top of the world. Hey. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Brian Nemhauser, aka Hawk Blogger, hawkblogger.com for the blog, at hawkblogger on Twitter, and slash hawkblogger on Facebook. Good to be back with you all. Um, want to dedicate, uh, if I can, this uh, this podcast to my mom. My mom's out in Boston, uh, tending to my sick grandmother who. May not be with us much longer and uh, have some tough choices ahead. So, Mom, if you're listening, love you and uh, be safe. Now, not the most exciting and, and a happy way to start a podcast, but um, I actually take a total detour um, somewhat related to that. And uh, bear with me if you would. Um, I don't know if any of you watch the show Black Mirror. Um it's on Netflix. I only just discovered it a few weeks ago. And it's basically, it's got these, it's a little bit like the Twilight Zone in that it's got these individual um, narratives, um, these episodes that stand on their own. But the, the writing's fantastic. Uh, the concepts are really cool. And basically the, the premise um, that ties this all together is these are all really like near future uh concepts, things, trends that are happening in technology um, that if you kind of take them to their nth degree, um, what could happen in society and, and things like that. And some of you may not be into sci-fi, I get it, that's fine. Um, but I was watching one this morning that was particularly interesting and it, it builds on a concept of uh, something that you've seen in other stories in the past, but but it was pretty well done. And basic idea is uh, that you know what would what would happen in society if we get to the point that you can actually download who you are um, and save it in in a computer so essentially you know mortality goes away um, your your physical body passes along but who you are as a person continues and and can be uh, you know part of a larger story that, that might happen in a different reality, um, something that's you know virtual as opposed to physical. And you may be asking, what the hell podcast are you listening to at this point? But uh, obviously it spoke to me a little bit as, as uh, you know, I've lost my grandfather in the past year and it, it seems like I may do the same with my grandmother soon. And um, uh, I started thinking about it as I was watching this show and then I started thinking about... Um, how this relates to sports. <laughs> My mind's sick and twisted that way. And uh, how things would change if mortality was kind of pulled out of the picture. Um, how much of your sports passion is based on this notion of wanting something to happen with your team in your lifetime? Um, you know, if, if you had gone your whole life without seeing the Seahawks win a Super Bowl, would you have felt like something was unfulfilled? Um, if 
you saw your team won a Super Bowl, but you knew that you were going to be around forever. And eventually, just statistically speaking, they would eventually win one. Um, would it be less sweet to know that that this wasn't a, you know, a moment in time that was somehow special and somehow um, distinct from from everything else? I don't know. I, you know, and and you know, I, I kind of thought through that for a little bit. I'd be curious um, how that how that plays for all of you, but I also kind of wonder it about it in the sense of once you got to this kind of never-ending future, where um, in this in this episode of Black Mirror, essentially you be you have this option of of basically living out the rest of your past life. Um, in some paradise and you know going on an experience essentially heaven um, as you define it and it's virtual but you're there and you feel you feel things it feels like a physical experience it feels real um what would that be like what would your what would your sports heaven look like what would you if you could um you know pass on to this next world and you could have whatever you wanted to happen in sports how would how would that look and it's funny because I, I kind of think about it with the Seahawks and it's like, yeah, I'd love to watch them win a Super Bowl, but it'd be pretty, you know, quickly it loses its flavor. You know, if, it, if it's something that you know is going to happen every time, how do you get pleasure out of it anymore? And and maybe that's a question that the Patriots fans are pretty familiar with as they've won their their division for, you know, like 15 or 16 straight years. Um, I can say for sure, I'm not proud of it, but it's just, it is an absolute reality that after the Seahawks won their first Super Bowl, my passion, you know, my hunger for that moment dissipated. It wasn't that I didn't care at all, but I, if I cared like on a scale of one to 10, I cared like 25 about the Seahawks winning their first Super Bowl, really any of my teams, the Mariners, the Blazers. Yes, I grew up in Portland, so I'm a Blazers fan. Um, I've never seen any of my teams reach that that peak before. And so having that happen the first time can only happen once. And after it happened, I just, I don't know. I didn't blog quite as much for a little while. When the next season came around, I cared, but I didn't care enough to wake up at 4 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. to, you know, write my stories or, or you know, come up with some angle that, that would help me get a new insight into my team. And I think we saw that in the players as well. Um, they admitted as much. So I, I do think there's something to this scarcity concept of, you know, that generates, you know, I, I, I posted a, a phrase that I've coined recently, at least I've never heard anyone else say it, but you can't know exhilaration unless you know devastation. And I actually said that to Softy uh, last week as he was pretty nervous ahead of the uh, the Huskies um, Pac-12 championship. Congratulations to those guys, by the way. And I told him that. I said, look, you know, he was so nervous. I was like, look, you cannot, you cannot have that feeling of pure joy, um, you know, exhilaration without knowing that there's this chance of total devastation and total dismay. And so, you know, once you've got a, a championship, uh, no one can take that away. The Seahawks were the Super Bowl champs back in 2013, technically um, 2014. Um, but, you know, it 
you'd like to have it happen again. And what I'd kind of hoped for at the time, and what I, what I joked about with some folks is, uh, forgive me, this is a little crass, but I think you guys can follow the logic, is, you know, you hope that it's, it's not like cocaine, where um, I have to admit I've never done cocaine, but if you, the, the story goes that you can never reach the same high you get the first time. Um, that everything else is about trying to get back to that first experience. You hope that it's more like when you lose your virginity. <laughs> You're like, wow, that was great. Let's do that again. And it doesn't mean that you enjoy it less the next time. It's just uh, it's not the first. In fact, in that case, you probably enjoy it more you know, as you, as you grow. But um, I think the reality, at least for me, has been mostly that it's more like the cocaine concept. It's like you, know, you have that first experience. I don't know that everything will ever meet it again. But now that there's been a little bit of scarcity the past few years, yeah, the CX got there um, not so long ago, but they didn't win. Um, I'm I'm super excited about what I think is a great chance for the team to win the Super Bowl this year. And if I got to a point, let's say, you know, 50 years from now, they have invented this technology and I could live forever in a virtual world and I could kind of define a little bit of what that reality would, would look like. I don't think it would be the Seahawks winning every time. I think I'd probably want to see the Seahawks, you know, doing it in different ways, um, you know, uh, against different teams. Uh, I'd love to see Cam Newton getting, you know, sacked repeatedly. <laughs> or, you know, Cowboys fans uh, or 49ers fans being devastated. I mean, like, there's a little bit of cruelty in that, I, I realize. But um, I think I think there's there's something to the unknown. Um, there's something to needing to have the potential for um, failure and potential for downfall and, and um, frustration and all those feelings um, for it to really have any meaning when it goes the other direction. Um, now, Pete Carroll obviously is, and John Schneider are, are fully focused on attempting to you know, give us the opposite. They want it to, they want to, you know, win every game, every week, every year and, and have that happen as often as possible. And, and I think we all logically want that, but it was really, it, you know, it left an indelible mark on me when I was in, um, Boston, this, this, uh, this past seat, well, this season, um, and watched the Seahawks beat the Patriots uh, just the level of entitlement among Patriots fans and, um, entitlement's the best word I can use, but it's not even necessarily all encompassing because, you know, it, it, there's just this aspect of they've won so much for so long and, and, you know, nobody really matches up to them. It, it, there's just a, a lack of really appreciation for, for winning, um, and a lack of respect for their opponents they face. And when, when the Seahawks won, um, you know, the, the overriding emotion I got from a lot of the fans was confusion. It was kind of like, huh, didn't expect that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think the Seahawks have a real chance, um, with Russell Wilson at quarterback with, um, the players that they have to, to have an extended run, you know, even now for the next five years, for maybe for the next 10 years, who knows how long um, that will go. And it'll be interesting to kind of see how, how Seahawks fans evolve over that time. I've already talked on this podcast before about the way I've changed, I've seen the change in the makeup at CenturyLink Field. 
back in 2005, um, you know, the hunger there before the Seahawks ever reached a Super Bowl and the way that field sounded when they played the Giants and caused all those false starts, um, the way it sounded at the NFC Championship game at the beginning when the, the Panthers were there and it was just, I don't know, it's, it's, it was otherworldly. Um, you know, I, I think that the 2013 NFC Championship game against the, the 49ers got reasonably close. I wouldn't say it was the same, um, but that was the closest I think it's it's been to that level of noise. And I think over time, as the team, you know, has won a Super Bowl now, you start to get, you know, prices go higher. Um, some people realize that maybe you can do better by selling their tickets rather than going, you know, financially and um, there's a lot of people that go there to observe. Um, they go there to watch the game and they don't go there to participate in it. They don't go there to affect it. And, <laughs> you know, I'm there and it, it, it's admittedly a little bit embarrassing. You know, it's a little like, you feel a little awkward when you're the only one screaming your head off when the other team's in the huddle trying to impact their ability to get a play called. And, you know, people to a varying level start cheering at, um, you know, the point that they get to the line of scrimmage, you know, there's only so much that that does. I mean, at that point, they're in silent count and, and uh, you know, the, the guard now taps the center and they have a, a set time that they do things and that's just it. And we still get some false starts, but the Seahawks, last time I checked, the Seahawks themselves had had more false starts in CenturyLink Field than their opponents. So um, I don't know that the, uh, this, the noise is really the way it used to be. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see how that will play out over time as, as more um, the Seahawks hopefully win, win more often. And speaking of uh, winning, <laughs> winning and winning more Super Bowls, I've been trying to decide whether or not I want to go to the Super Bowl this year, uh, assuming the Seahawks make it back, which I'm not superstitious about it, folks. I think the Seahawks are going to go back to the Super Bowl this year. I expect them to win the Super Bowl this year. I think I think they're the best team in the NFL, the most complete team in the NFL. Um, we'll talk a little bit about injuries and, and, and some changes there, but um, I have every reason to think this is going to be a team that, that adds a second ring, and so I've been trying to think of whether I want to go. I mean, I have zero interest in going to Houston, which um, doesn't help. Um I went to the one in New York. I went to the one in Arizona. I loved going to both, even though the second one ended not so wonderfully. But, um, you know, I think I've made the decision I don't want to go this year, even if I had the opportunity, because I haven't been in Seattle when um, the Seahawks have won a, a Super Bowl. And the, there's so, there was something really, really disconnected about being in New York um, technically New Jersey, when they won that first Super Bowl. Uh, you know, I was there with a friend, um, Softy and I you met up afterwards and, you know, we're freaking out and having a great time. But the stadium's pretty empty. Half the people there are there cheering for the other team or a third of them are cheering for the other team and a bunch of the others are there for corporate events and they don't really care one way or the other. They should there to watch the game. So there's this kind of like calm it's 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 an odd thing and, and then you basically like <laughs> they want you to leave and then you leave the stadium and you're in a, a city that doesn't really care who won the super bowl and um 
I don't regret it at all. I mean, it was an amazing experience, but one experience I haven't had is, is being in Seattle when they, when they win it and being in, be able to go out and be with friends or be at a bar and, and celebrate with the city. So, um, I, I was at the, the parade and that was great, but it was freezing and it wasn't quite the same. Um, so yeah, I don't know if, well, I'm curious what other people's plans are, um, uh, around, around that. And because the reason I'm even thinking about it now is because if you have any plans of, of going, um, you better have already booked hotels or figured out your travel plans. Um, my trick, um, that, you know, I'll give away my secret is I usually book hotel and, uh, airfare when the season begins. Um, cause you can always cancel it. Um, if you got a rechart, a refundable plane ticket and you book a hotel room that's refundable, um, you can cancel and, and, uh, it's no big deal. But, uh, as of now, last time I checked, all the hotels are pretty much booked and, um, you're probably out of the city, um, if you want to get anywhere around Houston to, to, uh, attend the Super Bowl this year. So for those that do want to go for the first time, um, I, I'd recommend you think about it. All right. So let's talk about things that are a little bit more, um, uh, in the current, in the present. Uh, CX had a fantastic win last week and, uh, you don't, you don't have to believe it, but, but, uh, when I was at, at pregame with my son and my friend Aaron we always kind of talk about how we're feeling about the game and what we think is going to happen and we throw out some scores and I generally don't like predicting publicly because I do get a little superstitious about that for some reason but um, a few times I will I think I've done that I did that for that Super Bowl in 2013 I was pretty clear about that I went on air and said it but um, anyway for this game I said my gut was 42 to 10 Seahawks my son said um, 38 to six, I think was his score. And, um, I can't remember what, what Aaron said, but, um, it's interesting. Like, and the Panthers came in with a lot of injuries, but not that many more injuries than they had the week before when they took the Raiders, you know, you know, all the way to 35, 32 in a really close game and really had that game, um, potentially won, um, if, if Greg Olson hadn't dropped a couple passes, um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, they, part of it is, you know, you got to attribute it to the fact that they just didn't really show up. Uh, they just didn't. Um, part of it is the Seahawks were focused and, and played a really good game. I think um, the offensive line just, you know, looked significantly better and more aggressive. I think the, the game plan that Daryl Bailville came out with was, far more impressive than I would have expected. Um, I, I think he, he did, he did something unique. He did some different things that he hasn't done, um, before. And, um, some of that I wrote about in my Friday column, um, used a lot of three tight ends, a lot of, um, stack tight ends. Um, and also did some, some tackle eligible with Riso Diombo coming in as an extra offensive lineman. So they had six big, big bodies in there. Um, and did some interesting things off of that. Um, one of them was, you know, the way to kind of tell this just really easily without having to count and, d d you know, differentiate is if you see one player split, split wide, one wide receiver, then you've got very likely you've got three tight ends in at that point. Um, 
And so on the Tyler Lockett play, the 75-yard touchdown that he scored to start the second half, that was a three tight end set um, with him running that fly sweep um, across. Um, that happened in that situation. I think I had thought it was a three tight end set when Nick Vanette caught his 21-yard catch, but it wasn't when I went back and started, you know, kind of um, mapping out the plays. Um, that was a two tight end set, but there was still some bunching around the line of scrimmage. It was kind of a, a it looked like a run formation or a formation that they often do that out of, or sometimes a wide receiver screen kind of formation. But they sent both tight ends um, straight down the field to really kind of flood the zone um, for, for people that aren't familiar with that concept. Um, zone defenses involve, you know, a player kind of guarding an area instead of a person. And one of the ways you attack a zone defense in any offense, whether it's football, basketball, um, or other, is you put more players in that area than there are defenders. Um, and because there's not a, a, a person-to-person responsibility, having multiple players in the zone can, you know, basically makes the defender choose one. And they did that in this case with Jimmy Graham and Nick Vanette. And guess what? They picked Jimmy Graham, which is probably a good choice. And it left Nick Vanette wide open for a big catch. And I think there's, there were some interesting signs that came out of that game in terms of how the offense played and how they attacked them. Um, They end up with over 500 yards, which is fantastic. And, one of the funny things is uh, I turned to turned to Aaron and, and my son during the game, and I said, God, you know, we've got, I think it was 23 points at halftime and over 300 yards, and it doesn't feel like we're playing that well on offense. It doesn't feel like we're playing poorly. Um, and they both looked at me like I was crazy, but it didn't feel like things were clicking perfectly. Um, some of that was things bogging down in the red zone, some of that was, you know, still not great third down performance. Um, there were definitely some big chunk plays, and and the team put up a ton of points. But you know, they ended up being, uh, what was it in the red zone? Um, you're gonna make me actually pull this up because I'm curious. I mean, I think they started the first half one for four in the red zone, and I want to say they were two, three for seven. Um, for the whole game, I'm going to open up my, my stat book. Uh, let's see. Seahawks against Carolina two for six in the red zone. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, four more points per trip. Um, and four times four is 16. You're talking about a team that theoretically could have scored 56 points in that game, um, and ended up with 40. And so if you think about it in terms of potential points versus, actual there's you know it wasn't the most efficient performance um for the seahawks and in fact their red zone performance um of late has been really bad um they their scoring's up uh so if you look at the the first four games of the season they average 20 points a game the second four games of the season they average 21 points a game the last four games that they've played, they're averaging 25.5 points a game. That's even with a five-point game in, in mixed in. Um, so their scoring average is steadily increasing each kind of quarter of the season. But then look at this. It's an oddity. So, so then if you look at the red zone performance, first four games of the season, 50%. They were 6 for 12. Um, second four games of the season, they were 62%. 
8 for 13. So more red zone opportunities, 13 versus 12, and a higher percentage. The last four games, they are 38%. So they went from 50% to 62%, down to 38%. 6 for 16. So they had as many touchdowns in the red zone in this last four games as they had in the first four games, but they did it. It required four additional trips to get there. They were three for seven against the Patriots. Um, so that's another game where there was four red zone opportunities that came away without a touchdown. They were one for three against Philadelphia, and they'd never even gotten the red zone against the Buccaneers. So that's, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, that's either encouraging or discouraging. It's encouraging if you want to look at it and say, hey, they're already increasing their scoring significantly, um, and they're doing it while not succeeding in the red zone. Once they get back to their normal red zone performance, they're going to score a ton more. Another way to look at it is uh, they've got a problem in the red zone, and um, you know this is going to come back to them. They're not going to always get six or seven trips in the red zone. They've got to be able to be more efficient, and their scoring could, could suffer. I tend to believe it's the former. I think they're getting more opportunities, and I think they're going to get more efficient with those opportunities. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely one of the things I'm watching. On uh, the defensive side of the ball, uh, the Seahawks give up seven points, and those seven points only came, you know, on a play where there's obviously some miscommunication after Earl Thomas was injured. And... You know, despite the fact that they started off poorly against Tampa Bay, giving up two touchdowns in the first two drives, the Seahawks have given up 21 points in the past two weeks. And um, if you go the past three weeks, they're giving up an average of 12 points a game uh, against Philadelphia, at Tampa Bay, and against Carolina. And, um, you know, the defense, honestly, I, I think when you look at one of the keys to the defense this year, um, has just been the play of Cam Chancellor. Um, y you can look at really any of the players, and, and there's, they're all over the place how good they are. But as someone who's watched you know, in detail how the team's played in all facets, the player who really seems to have made the most difference with his presence has been Cam Chancellor. When he was gone, um, you really noticed uh, the team struggling on things like third down. You noticed... Um, uh, you know, the tackling was not quite as good. It seemed like they maybe were not always in the right place. And like, maybe I think he, he's good at helping people get, get set, um, before the snap. Um, I don't think any of his numbers on their own, just jump off the, the page. He's not having a season where he's got going to have a ton of interceptions or a ton of forced fumbles or a ton of sacks or, or tackles or anything like that. But He's having one of his best seasons in recent memory, and he's a guy that, you know, I think the Seahawks really are a different team when he's in the lineup. And obviously it begs the question, we've never really seen what this team looks like on a prolonged period of time without Earl Thomas. Before the Tampa Bay game, we had never seen the Seahawks start a game without Earl Thomas. And it wasn't great at the beginning of the Tampa Bay game, obviously. Things were, were not great. We also, though, can't forget that Deshaun Shedd was not playing in that game either. Um, neither was Michael Bennett. You know, there's a lot of pieces that were, were missing there. But 
one of the things that you could argue is that, you know, Stephen Terrell, while I think he has shown the ability to, to cover the deep ball, I think he's, you know, he didn't do it against the, the Panthers on that first play, but, you know, I, I give him a pass on, on that situation. I think the place where he may struggle at times is going to be the nuances and the details of red zone defense or third down defense. From, from what I've seen so far, he's actually done a pretty good job of staying on top of deep passes, um, of breaking on the ball and being ready to make plays. He's had his hands on what could have been two interceptions so far um, in pretty short time. So I think, I wouldn't say I'm bullish on Steve um, Terrell being the next great Seahawks defender, but you know, can he be the level of like a Deshaun Shed? You know, what Deshaun Shed is to cornerback for Seattle, could Steve Terrell be for safety? Um, and I think, um, I think that that's uh, would be fantastic. I think it's more than enough. Uh, I think this defense. You know, I've long thought that Earl Thomas was the most irreplaceable player um, on the team. Um, other than maybe someone like Russell Wilson. And I didn't know what this team would look like without him. And honestly, I can't say I really do yet because we haven't seen it. Um, But I am cautiously optimistic about what I've seen there. I think we're going to have a hard time really getting a good read on what what it's going to look like um, these last few games of the season. The game coming up against the Packers uh, could be played in heavy snow. Um, I think that's obviously whether that how that affects the passing game. You know, it could be make it easier for people to make passes. It could make it harder, but it also is going to be pretty unique. It's not exactly a, a good test. Um, if it was Aaron Rodgers and it was on a neutral field or in you know normal weather, I think that'd be a great chance to really see what Steve Terrell brings to the table. And then you've got um, the Rams, um, and then you've got. The Cardinals, who will challenge him a little bit. And then you've got the 49ers. So, in all likelihood, what you're probably looking at is a a Seahawks defense that is not going to be thoroughly challenged through the air in a way that you could project out what that means um, for future performances until you reach the playoffs. And even then, um, we'll see. You know, if you look at the standings as they as they are right now, um, you've got the the Cowboys number one in the NFC. That's very likely going to stay that way. The Seahawks number two, which is pretty likely it's going to stay that way. Uh, Lions at three, Falcons at four, Giants at five, and Bucks at six, and you know that would mean the Seahawks would have a bye, and the winner of I think it's three versus six, so it would be the Lion. The Bucks would go to Detroit, and the Giants would go to the Falcons. the The higher seed that comes out of that would go to Seattle. So you could have, um, you know, assuming that the Lions were to beat the Bucks, you could have the Lions coming to Seattle um, in the second week of the season. Um, if somehow the Bucks win, 
um, you could have the Falcons coming. So, you know, one of those two teams are probably, I'd say your three likeliest first round opponents or first game opponents for the Seahawks would be, uh, the Lions is probably the most likely right now. Um, then the Bucks, and I think I'm trying to think. Is there no? Sorry, either the Lions or the Falcons are are the most likely. Um, uh, the Bucks would, if they won, would always go to Dallas. So um, anyway, uh, another one that could sneak in there, depending on how things play out. You could have. Um, the Redskins steal that sixth spot. They've obviously got a powerful passing offense. Um, possible you could have the Vikings sneak in there. I don't know if I really believe that. Packers sitting there at six and six. Um, I think there's a, a credible path for the Packers to make the playoffs still. Um, this game against the Seahawks is arguably their toughest remaining game. They already have beat the Lions, and they have another game against the Lions coming up. So uh, the the final game of the season is against the Lions. So if the Lions lose one of their next three other games and they play, I think, in Dallas for one of those games, so there's a decent chance they're going to lose, drop at least one other game, then that final game of the season would be for the, um, the NFC North division title. And... <laughs> hard to bet against Aaron Rodgers in, in those kinds of situations. Um, so I think there's a really credible chance where you could see a, a Packers team make it into the playoffs if they can find a way to win this week. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. Um, I think it can be a little bit boring to just talk about how weather can affect the game because, you know, what are you going to do? Everyone is affected by the weather. It's just going to be played and so on and so forth. But I think it's un- important to understand it. It is definitely an asterisk when there is severe weather impacting footing and visibility and potentially, you know, wind. So right now the forecast is calling for anywhere from, you know, three to nine inches of snow starting Saturday night, starting tonight and um, going on into Sunday afternoon in Wisconsin, in Green Bay. And the hour-by-hour forecast kind of has it looking like it might taper off by the time this game starts. It's a 125 start Seattle time. Uh, obviously, four is that 425? Might be 325 um, Midwest time. Um, so it, it'd probably be tapering off a little bit by then. Um, but when you've got really snowy weather, what tends to happen, you'd think it'd be low scoring. It's not always the case. I've seen games that end up being incredibly high scoring because <laughs> the defense is slipping around, the offense gets a step in front of somebody, and nobody can catch up, and you know the offense kind of puts a foot in, in the dirt and, and cuts in one direction, and the defense can't do the same thing. Um, you see some screwy plays, defenders falling down and receivers being wide open. You know, I've seen plenty of high-scoring games uh, in sn- in snow, so I, I wouldn't assume it's going to be low-scoring. It does tend to favor teams with more powerful um, players. So, you know, if if you can knock people back on the offensive line or on the defensive line, um, it's really hard to anchor um, in, in that kind of weather and and with that kind of footing problem. And so the running game can be a factor. And I like Thomas Rawls grew up in Flint, Michigan. 
he went to school at Western Michigan. He knows cold weather. He knows snow. And um, I think he's uh, built for this kind of game. I think he could be a really key factor for Seattle. And if you flip over to the Packers side of the the, the offense, um, their running game is kind of a mess. Uh, they lost Eddie Lacy for the year on IR. They James Starks, who's been a, a terrific backup, almost a starter quality backup, has not been running that well. And even I think he's relatively healthy now, and he's still just not getting carries because he's been you know just over a couple yards of carry. I think is what he's been at. And so they've been desperate. They've looked at Ty Montgomery, who's a receiver. You're going to see a guy with you know an eight on his the front of his jersey in the backfield sometime during this game. And they picked up Kristen Michael, who all of us know pretty well. Um, you know, I think Kristen Michael can be dangerous. Um, I, I think he's he's also, you know, not been the most effective runner um, for a lot of people. So as, as long as the Seahawks can kind of be uh, disciplined in their in their gaps, um, you know, I think that they have a pretty big advantage in terms of at least the quality of the running backs um, that, that are going to be available in this game. I think that if you look at the offensive lines, the Packers have an advantage. Their, their offensive line is is experienced, and it's got a lot of good players on it. Um, I don't know that they've been the best run-blocking offensive line. I think they're a much better pass-protecting offensive line. I think the Seahawks are looking like they're starting to get it. I'd love to see Jermaine Fetty get have back-to-back solid games. Um, you know, he had a good game last week by all accounts, and he is the biggest player on that line and they need somebody that can really physically manhandle an opponent that they can depend on in some of these, you know, short yardage situations. Um, so it'd be great to see that. It'd be interesting to see what happens on the right side of the line. Um, Bradley Sowell sounds like he'll probably get another start. Although Pete Carroll was very noncommittal on that, um, earlier this week, Tom Cable seemed to indicate he would, um, and then, you know, you've got Justin Britt, you know, and, and um, Glowinski and and uh, George Fant, um, who are going to have some uh, opportunities against, I think, a pretty, I don't know. I, I, I have mixed feelings about the Packers' defensive line. I think Mike Daniels is a pretty stout player. I think he can be a difference maker at times but he's not nearly as dynamic as some of the other players the Seahawks have faced in there. Um, I think Nick Perry was maybe their best player in terms of um, causing pass pressure or even um, uh, as a run defender, and, and he's going to miss this game. Um, he's he's has hand surgery, and he's out. Uh, the, the linebacker situation is is in uh, almost in shambles for the Packers. be interesting to see if Blake Martinez and, and Jake Ryan play. There's questions about that. And Clay Matthews, who took a pretty big hit, he called it a cheap hit from former Seahawks Alan, a Seahawk uh, Alan Barber, um, who plays for the Eagles. Uh, anyway, he separated his shoulder, I think sprained his AC joint, and has apparently like a pretty massive bruise through you know his chest, under his armpit, and his back. Um, attempted to play last week, really barely could do it, was not on the field for many snaps. Um, there's some... You know, rumors that he's looking a little bit better this week, but no one's saying he's all the way back. So I don't think we're going to see Clay Matthews at his best. Um, you know, that Packers defense already, you know, they're giving the, – the, the one thing I'd say that might be an advantage for them, depending on how this plays out, is um, 
they give up more yards per attempt at 7.7 yards per pass than any defense in the NFL. They give up 102 passer rating, which I think is second worst in the NFL. So their pass defense has been awful. And if this is a situation where it is due to wind and snow and other factors, you really just can't get the passing game. You know, you can't even attempt it, and you basically have to batten down the hatches and do do it on the ground. That probably is an advantage for the Packers in some way, um, you know, because their defense is just not held up in the passing game, um, quite honestly. And if you have to be on the ground, um, you know, you could argue that's still advantage Seahawks because I think they have a better run situation than the Packers. But I have a harder time believing the Packers are going to be limited to just the ground game. I think Aaron Rodgers and that team are so accustomed to playing in the cold weather and in this kind of in those kind of conditions that there's an advantage for them. They'll be able to find their pick their chances to, to pass the ball. So um, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, it is really, really hard to predict. I love, love, love snow football. Love watching it. There's nothing better than being on your couch <laughs> while those guys are freezing their tails off and. Uh, you know, you got the fire going and, and everything's good when, when you've got that happening. But, um, you know, you talk to players like Richard Sherman, Doug Baldwin, they've never played in uh, a game in the snow in their lives. That's cool. Uh, you know, that life's about getting those experiences. And, and it is, I wouldn't say it's a, a, a big game for the Seahawks. Uh, you could say that about every game. Every game's big. But, um, you know, I, I think the Seahawks can go 3-1 and one the rest of the way. And, very likely, you know, as long as the Lions go three and one, um, you know, they're they're in. Um, they're in at second seed. Um, I think the Seahawks, if you don't know this, they can win the division this week. If they win and the Cardinals lose, Seahawks clinch the division, which would be pretty cool. Um, but honestly, this game means a lot more to the Packers and, and their chances. I'm less interested in seeing if the Seahawks, you know, play fantastic football um i I hope they do more interested just seeing you know do they match the intensity are they are they and match is the wrong word because i I want them to set their own intensity but do they do they play to their standard in terms of intensity and and how they're engaged on the field we saw a a rare very rare blip on that in the packers game um they came back last week and and reestablished themselves and reestablished who they are um you know this is another game where there's a team that could want it more than the Seahawks want it. And um, you just can't really let that happen. So I'm going to kind of be watching for, for effort and watching for how they get started and how they're hitting and, and, and all that kind of stuff um, in this game. And hopefully we don't see anything you know on the offensive line that ever resembles what we saw in Tampa Bay. That was, that was terrible. So um, interesting game this week. Um, looking forward to it for sure. Uh, we're going to get a quick turnaround then to the Rams game on Thursday. Uh, and you know, that that's going to be tough. It's going to be interesting to see how certain players are able to recover in that time period. Um, I think you could potentially see the Seahawks being conservative in that case and, and trying to get a couple players that get a little nicked up. Um, either they could give people an extra rest this week in order to be ready for next, you know, this game on Thursday, or they could give people a break on Thursday um, to give them what is essentially a, a two-week break, um, you know, because they wouldn't play till the. Actually, I think their following game is, <laughs> yeah, it's so weird. I, th- I 
think the game after that, uh, after the Rams game, is the Cardinals game, and that's on a Saturday, um, of all things. So um, if you don't know, there's some weird games the rest of the season for the Seahawks. Maybe that's maybe that's the 49ers game at the end of the year that's on a Saturday. I can't remember. Anyway, um, so so we'll see how they handle um, injury situations and what goes on there. But, um, you know, it's it's a chance for the Seahawks. You get this game every reason to think that they can close out the rest of the season, um, you know, with, with a number of victories and get to, you know, 12 wins on the year, which would be great. And I think we're seeing this team really start to prove um, what we've seen all along, um, which is they can be the, the most complete team um, that the Seahawks have, has featured. They have, you know, they're well on their way to being the number one defense in the league again from scoring. They are better against the run uh, against uh, defending the run than they were in 2013. They're better than they were in 2013 in pressuring the passer, um, despite getting no sacks the last two weeks. Um, they're a better offensive team than they were in 2013. They're not necessarily a better running team yet, although 240 yards last week may be hopefully an indicator of, of that starting to return to form. But I think they will very likely be a good running team um, the rest of the way. And they're a much better passing team than they were in 2013. So, you know, special teams factors in there a bit as well. I think the coverage teams are, are comparable. Um, the The kicking game hasn't been quite as consistent um, as it was back then. But, you know, this is this very well could be the most complete team the Seahawks have ever had, um, regardless of what their record says. Um, and I look around the NFL and there's just no other teams that come close to having the potential to be this complete across all phases. The Cowboys, I think, you know, their offense is great. I think the Falcons offense is great. I think the Patriots offense is great. Um, I think the Raiders' offense is very good. I wouldn't quite call it great. I think the Broncos' defense is great. Um, none of those teams have the you know either the defense or the offense to complement their strength. I think the Seahawks do, and people can talk about <laughs> coming up with reasons why other teams um, are better, and they often just point to records. Records just don't matter that much, you know, if the the schedules are completely different and the injuries factors if you get the teams and they're both healthy and they're playing um you know at their potential it really matters what those teams strengths are and and the Seahawks have more than the other teams in the NFL so with that I'm going to uh say thank you for tuning in enjoy the game and uh, I'll be back next week go Hawks